Welcome to Ellas, a bi-weekly podcast made by Latinas for Latinas. I talk with talented, inspiring, and empowering women that are living their dreams and making a path for the next generation. I'm Brenda Hernandez Jaimes, and this is Ellas. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Ellas. I'm super honored to introduce today's guest. She is a proud professor, attorney, and activist. She is currently the co-director of Loyola Law School, Los Angeles Immigrant Justice Clinic. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Southern California and her Juris Doctorate from Loyola in 2012. Upon graduating, she was jointly awarded Loyola's Postgraduate Public Interest Fellowship and co-founded this unique and vital community-based clinic, which brought direct immigration legal services through clinical legal education to the east side of Los Angeles. Through this fellowship, this proud Latina gave her first law lecture at the age of 25. She continues to successfully supervise many clinical law students in their representation of immigrant clients. In addition to her role in the clinic, she has also taught courses in regards to cross-cultural competency and trauma-informed lawyering, as well as spearheaded Loyola's Law and Border Practitioner, which includes an alternative spring break trip to El Paso, Texas, where students represent immigrants in removal proceedings. Her amazing work doesn't stop there. She has also served as a visiting professor at El Instituto Tecnológico y de Estudios Superiores de Occidente, Universidad Jesuita de Guadalajara in Mexico, where she taught U.S. asylum law and worked with migrants in transit. She has also testified before the California State Assembly. Her important work has been highlighted in Los Angeles Times and CNN en Español. This empowering Latina remains active in la comunidad as a member of various immigrant rights coalitions and is a current Latina commissioner at the Hispanic National Bar Association and Mexican-American Bar Association trustee. She has been acknowledged by the American Bar Association as a 2017 On the Rise Top 40 Young Lawyer and was appointed to the California Department of Justice CalGang Database Technical Advisory Committee, where she will assist drafting regulations of shared gang database in California. Welcome, Marisa Montes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be on your show. Thank you for accepting my invitation. It was it was something totally unexpected but amazing. I since starting this podcast, I had always wanted a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I met someone, unfortunately didn't, you know, come to fruition the interview. And I was always like that was always in the back of my mind like I really want a lawyer. You know, I think it's something important. I want, you know, Latinas who want to study this profession, to work in this profession, to listen uh, about the story of a lawyer, right? And a friend of mine, Esmeralda, who studied with you in high school, who is a listener here in Ellas, um, I told her about this and she's like, I know a lawyer. And she, in that moment, she texted you out of the blue. She told you to come, like, if you were interested and you said yes. And I was like, so surprised and just humbled and honored that you said yes of like you don't like completely don't know me and you were so open to this this you know conversation no yeah um of course it was really funny because um i went to high school Esmeralda, which is a very long time ago (laughs) (laughs) and it was very interesting when i got her message and she reached out to me and she told me that your podcast focused on latinas and empowering latinas and 
That's also a really big thing of mine. Part of, you know, just doing my immigrant rights related work and teaching is setting an example specifically for young women of color because mm-hmm. I've been there, right? Yes. And I've had many other Latinas and other women of color pull me up. So I want to make sure that I return the favor, not out of responsibility, but out of honoring those who have helped me and, you know, wanting to help other individuals like me. So thank you. Thank you. I feel very honored. And yes, I'm all about, you know, agree when it comes to the universe and energy. So it was meant to be. Yes, it was meant to be. And because once, you know, she was telling me about you, about your work, and then, you know, talking with you and knowing your story. And now it is, I was like, I was like, yes, Marissa was the lawyer that I needed to talk with because the work that you're doing right now and what you've been doing for years um, back is so important. And right now, yes, we were talking with my mom. We know we need more Latinas mm-hmm. who are studying law and to help our community. So thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. And let's begin. Let's let's start. First, I want to ask you, because you are a woman, woman of many titles. How do you define yourself, Marissa? Oh, that's that's a good question. And, um, you know, when I think about it, I my career is a very big part of my life, mm-hmm. you know, so I, tr- I identify as like a proud Latina. But more than anything, a proud Latina attorney, professor, and activist. You know, I love what I do, and I'm blessed that that is what I'm, I've been able to go forward with my dream, mm-hmm. and specifically being able to to help my community. I think I've, I may have told you before, but the issue of immigration is one that's very personal to me due to my own personal story and that of my family. And it's a very much a way for me to to honor my my parents and my generations before me. Um, and being able to take this role and occupy a space that usually is not available to, mm-hmm. to many Latinas. Yes. So let's begin there. You know, before you were 18 and decided to study law, you know, how was your childhood like? You know, because what you were telling me, that really was the reason that mm-hmm. sparked you to just go and study it. Yeah. You know, reflecting back, I always tell a lot of my students that, you know, we we experience a lot of struggles growing up, right? And especially in our communities. And I'm a true believer that struggle gives you purpose. You know, I was born in Guadalajara. I came to the United States at the age of two. My mom is from San Luis Potosí. And my father um, was born in El DF, but he was brought to the border, I mean, border to the United States when he was very, very young as well. And then he basically grew up at the border between San Diego and Mexicali because my grandfather lived in Mexicali and my grandma ended up living in San Diego. And like the story of many immigrant families, we experience a lot of hardships and obstacles arriving to the United States. You know, we face discrimination, we face homelessness, not just because of issues with language barriers and national origin, but discrimination that my father faced in employment due to a disability that he had. And all of that, you know, especially as a child, having to be aware of all of these issues, I became aware of the obstacles that many immigrants face. And, you know, I grew up, I was very fortunate to grow up in the suburb of the South Bay, Hermosa Beach, and then I went to high school in Manhattan Beach. And the reason that I got to go there is because my mom hustled. My mom hustled to work two jobs so that we can afford to live in a small apartment in that area because she wanted me to attend school in that school district. And she had always told me that, you know, your education is number one. We didn't come to the United States for you not to do anything with your life. So she really was the one who set the foundation. And I think growing up in a community that was very affluent, very white, very different from mine, I became aware Mm -hmm. of the social descendants that exist between 
both of those communities, not just because of race, but socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. And I actually had a very defining moment in high school where I decided to walk out back in I was like a junior or so it, due to the there was a law that was going to pass at the time that giving undocumented immigrants licenses that didn't pass. I was, you know, an activista since then. And then I was forced to give a presentation in class out of teachers who were supporting my my p- political position. And it became very controversial because many of my classmates obviously weren't accepting made me realize accepting of me and my community. Mm-hmm. And basically since then, that's been like my defining movement of knowing that I wanted to go forward and pursue a career doing something that was immigrant rights work related. And once you started that process of taking that path, how was, you know, getting into school and all that process? Because, you know, your mom really built that foundation of you going to school. Was she there alongside you of like helping you fill out the papers and the forms? Like, because obviously as a first gen, you know, first generation Latina, it's, Mm -hmm. it's tough. It's, you know, doing all that process and you know for our listeners who want to be lawyers how is that like it you know it was rough because you know my my dad went to college right when we came to the united states he was working and putting himself through college and then my mom did go to college in mexico but obviously it's very very different so filling out the fafsa was something that was completely new to them mm-hmm. college applications personal statements so i really had to go outside of my immediate family network and, you know, I sought the assistance of mentors. So, um, and I also had an, a tia who wasn't really my tia, but, you know, she was there since my family came to the United States and was very helpful, my tia Anne. And she was the one that basically helped me figure out the application mm-hmm. process. And then also when I was in high school, my mom, who was working as a Spanish teacher at the time, met an attorney, a Latina attorney, and her name was Maria Villa, who is one of my longtime mentors. And she also helped me a lot, especially when it came to picking which university to go to, because I had gotten Mm -hmm. acceptances to various colleges. Some gave me financial aid packages, some of it didn't. And she was the one that kind of told me like, you know, since you want to pursue a career as a as an attorney, I recommend that you go to USC. So that's mm-hmm. where I started off as an undergrad. So I had to be resourceful, even outside of my own school, because even though I went to a school that had a lot of resources, I did face discrimination from counselors even who said stuff like trying to dissuade me from going to universities, doubting my GPA. It was really funny then when I got accepted into USC and they were shocked. But anyways, I had a really good GPA and and that SAT score to get in. But anyways, um, just to to show that people always doubt you. So I would recommend, especially young Latinas who are in high school, go out and reach for help. You know, contact me, contact other Latinas who are in the profession you seek to to proceed uh, with, because we are here to help you. We really are. You have to you have to be resourceful. And as you know, from coming from our community, we know how to be resourceful. So, yeah, don't be afraid to go outside of your immediate family network. I'm really, you know, happy that you basically gave your teachers that doubted you that cachetada con guante blanco. Oh, yeah. Of showing that you got a substitute at C. And how was that moment like? Like those years of studying in USC and, you know, just taking it in and, you know, as a young student, as a Latina student, what were the um, expectations that you had, the hopes, and maybe the. Because you obviously offered discrimination in high school. Mm -hmm. How was it like in USC? Well, it it was interesting because 
I went to a school that was primarily white and affluent, and USC is very similar, even though I love my alma mater and I'm proud Trojan. Mm-hmm. But the great thing about USC is that right when I entered my freshman year, I actually was able to be a part of the Latino force. So I got to live with other classmates of mine from similar backgrounds. I joined various other clubs. I was in Micha the USC. So I was able to really find my community there. Mm-hmm. I still, to this day, keep in contact with the, the director of what was formerly called Incentive. Chicano, they've already changed the name, perdón que se me olvidó. Sorry, Billy. Um, but I was very much able to find my community there. Mm-hmm. And even though I was very much involved in the Latino community at USC, I also also branched out and I looked for people who were also interested in pursuing law. I was in a service org called the Helenes. I was in the pre-law fraternity, which is really dorky, but through that, you know, I was able to create a network and also meet other students who might have been first generation as well. And we together as a group navigated the process of being in college and then, you know, also being then applying to law school. And then while I was at USC, I, I continued to do immigrant rights work because it's what I loved. I got to an intern at different nonprofits in the L.A. area, such as NILC, the National Immigration Law Center. And I actually got my first exposure to clinical STEAM teaching at the USC Immigration Clinic when I was working with um, my dear professor and also mentor, Niels Frenzen. And he was really the one who took me under his wing to not only just expose me to the practice of immigration law, but to the fun aspects of teaching. I always thought his job was the coolest in the world because it combined, obviously, working with law students Mm -hmm. and still representing clients. And I was joked that I would end up doing that with him, which he didn't believe me because he said, no, you're going to be a corporate attorney. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to stick to it. And look, I did. (laughs) So yeah, so honestly, my time at USC, I always joke around, was the best four years of my life. And then law school was a very rude awakening. (laughs) So let's start with there. You know, know, your professor was that jumpstart of teaching, but also focus in immigration law. And once you're in Loyola for your school Mm -hmm. in law school, that was the rude awakening. Can you share that? Like, go deep because... Oh, for sure. You know, our Latinas, they have that vision, right, of Mm -hmm. being a lawyer. But let's get to the nitty-gritty facts of, like, how it really is and what they have to prepare for themselves because I imagine you had an idea, but... Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I was a first generation law school student, you know, Um, and I always tell people that I equate going into the law, becoming a lawyer to like pledging a fraternity or a sorority, as cliche as that might sound, because there's a lot of obstacles you need to overcome and they're basically tests. Right. So the first one is the LSAT. The LSAT actually has no bearing on your success as an attorney. And that's what I tell many pre-law students about. Tell them that, you know, um, you have to study hard for it, though, and take it seriously. Um, I would do the same thing as I did with undergraduate. Make sure you shop around your personal statement. I edit statements all the time for students. And also be very conscious of the law schools you want to go to. You know, I, from the get-go, knew that I wanted to be a public public interest attorney. So I specifically looked for law schools that were very social justice focused. And is why I picked Loyola versus some of the other law schools that really motivate their students to go forward with being corporate attorneys, which don't knock me. I don't want to knock them because we need Latinas everywhere. But I knew that personally, this is what I wanted to do. And I wanted a school that was going to provide me resources to be able to pursue Pursue that interest. So I decided to come to Loyola for the reason being that we are very highly ranked in, cu- in terms of being a public interest law school. Um, I'm not sure as to our ranking right now, but I know at the time when I applied, we were number two in the nation. 
So when I got into law school, I did, you know, I was a little cocky, I'll be honest, because I did really well at USC. Mm -hmm. You know, I graduated with a 4-0 my senior year. And then I came to Loyola and I got my first C since the sixth grade. Yeah. But let me tell you something. That's the best C I've ever gotten in my life. <laughs> I tell students that all the time because I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, especially once you make it to grad school. Like mm -hmm. I've hustled. I made it through high school. I made it through college. But grad school is a totally different beast. Um, and it was a very humbling experience. And it very much also made me question my own capability. But getting a C in a class does not define you and will not define how it is as you are as a lawyer. If anything, you know, it humbled me and it, yeah, it very much did humble me. And it also taught me that I need to reach out for help when I need to, right? I, I was used to being able to be, figure things out on my own. But law school teaches you, it basically strips down everything you know and teaches you how to think in a very new way. Mm -hmm. So reaching out to other Latina lawyers, my mentor that I mentioned, Maria Villa, was really much my rock during this process because she was the only attorney that I knew and that I could go forward and tell her, like, I'm struggling in this class. I don't know what words like jurisdiction mean. I, I don't know what an outline is. So she was able to help me walk through it so that then I could help, well, navigate the course here at Loyola. And, you know, your first year, it's going to be rough. Everyone tells you it's mm -hmm. the worst year of your life. Maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it is, it is very, very hard. And I tell students that it's going to test you emotionally, uh, mentally, and you just need to be prepared because you need to be able to stick through it. So if you really, you need to know that your end game is to be an attorney and that this is just part of the process. Yes. Yeah. So can you share with us to our listeners who are maybe unaware of what a personal statement is and what it consists of the L LSAT and the your jurisdiction, like all of these terms that, yeah. you know, are unaware of, like, because they're not interested in studying law, but we should be more open-minded. No. No. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so applying to law school, you need to take the LSAT, which is a mm -hmm. standardized test and they have logical reasoning on their logic games and reading comprehension. It's supposed to be an indicator as to your success. And from what I know, it's like a 25% correlation, actually. Your personal statement is very important, you know, because it's basically your ability to tell your story and what perspective you're going to bring into law school. Admission counselors really want to know, like, what is your view on the law and how can you change the conversation while you're in class and then once you graduate as an attorney. Mm -hmm. So please tell your story, you know, don't be able, don't be afraid to hide the ball or say like, this is too personal or I don't want, I've had students be like, well, I don't want to be that Latina girl that talks about her childhood story. No, you have to be, you have to be right. Cause mm -hmm. that's, what's going to make you stand out. This is a time where you have to pull out all of your cards to go back to the LSAT. A lot of students freak out as to like what score they should get. Right. A solid score is probably a 160 to be safe. But obviously, it depends on your GPA, too. A solid GPA mm -hmm. to get into, like, a good law school is, like, a 3.5. Obviously, if you want a top 20, a 160 and above on the LSAT would help you. But also, going to a top 20 law school is not going to define you as an attorney, which is also, I think, very important for other, mm -hmm. for young attorneys or for young prospective law students to know. And then when it comes to, I still remember when I walked into my first class with Professor Ide Civil Procedure, who gave me my first seat, you know, Went right away into the case, you know, reviewed the case, asked you for the facts. What are the rules? I would say if you can, you know, to pick up a couple law school, like you, they have like, um, they're not law school manuals. I don't want to say that. They're like law outlines that you can buy at a bookstore mm -hmm. or anything like that which basically help you break down a case that you might have to read for class. I would recommend doing that. And trust me, when it comes to the words, 
buy yourself a legal dictionary. It helps a ton because that, trust me, to this day, sometimes I'm like, I need to look that up. (laughs) (laughs) And just don't be afraid to ask for help and ask questions because trust me, your other classmates might act like they know what they're doing and they're completely clueless as well. So you have to be okay with being vulnerable to a certain extent. And again, asking for guidance and help. Yeah. Yeah. You said something really important, like the top 20 attorney schools is not going to make you a great attorney and when you were in grad school it really humbled you and i feel like being an immigration attorney you really have to be humble and know you said something important too like before we were talking you're not a savior you are not saving people you are there accompanying them and Mm -hmm. being an advocate so let's go deep in that yeah because i feel people who are going into studying law think they're going to get all the money in the world. They're going to be recognized because of the work they're doing. Yeah. But specifically for immigration law, you really have to be humble. So exactly. Can you share that experience? Yeah. You know, I, I tell students all the time, like if you get into a top 20 law school, great, you know, that Mm -hmm. that's awesome, but it's not going to, it's not going to make or break you as to like whatever type of attorney you become. Right. I personally know some really amazing, you know, attorneys who went to unaccredited law schools, right? And I know some really, really bad ones that went to Harvard and Yale, to be completely honest, right? And I really think it's what you make of it. It's really, really what you make of it because you're, like in any career, I think it's your work ethic and your reputation that's going to follow you more than what grade you got in a class, what top 20 law school you went to, and if you were in law review, right? Um, And especially if you want to do any type of public interest work, not only to immigration, I really think that you have to humble yourself, but also understand your role, you know, and I will pick a student, for example, any day that has the heart Mm -hmm. and the love for the work than a student that is in the top 10% of the class to be in the clinic. Because at the end of the day, the student that has the heart and loves the community is the one that's going to excel and is going to be that zealous advocate versus someone who's like, I'm, you know, I'm the top of my class. I'm just taking this because, you know, I want to do a good deed. And one of the things that I t- teach my students in class a lot is the the idea of being a client-centered lawyer, you know, and being community lawyer. So that means is really understanding your role as not the leader, but understanding you as the person who just has a tool belt, right? Mm-hmm. And that the leader at the end of the day is going to be the community or the client that you're serving. So understanding that, you know, you've been privileged enough to reach a certain spot, reach a certain career, and you're not meant to be the voice for that community. Community, even if times when you come from that community, yes. right? But you're the one to present the options, explain to them their rights. What if they proceed with decision A over B and be there by your client's side while they make these decisions. And sometimes, you know, there are certain legal decisions that we as attorneys have to take, but uh, it's really important to understand your role. And I think something too, that's very important for all students is, um, understanding that you will you can't save people you're not here to save anybody mm-hmm. right your client at the end of the day is going to be the one that is empowered to make the decisions and is really the one that has control over their life in case yes. right and again you will be the one that will just guide them through the process the legal process or the options that they're deciding to take mm-hmm. yeah and af- upon graduation you received this fellowship and you co-founded Loyola Clinic so how was that like you know you were just out of grad school and I I feel like you know pushed into the real world Mm -hmm. of immigration law and 
Can you share yeah. that experience? Yeah. I, it's funny because when I look back at it now, sometimes I feel like the recession worked in my favor. <laughs> um, I graduated during time where it was very difficult. I also went to a law school during a time when it was very competitive. I had just graduated college and um, everyone was applying to graduate school mm-hmm. because there was no jobs out there. But I went to graduate school. I went to law school because I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to waste any time, I felt. So when I got here to Loyola, I was shocked because we we are a school that's very much pride, takes pride in social justice to this day. But we were also the only school at the time um, in Southern California that didn't have an immigration clinic. And the law school is literally in the heart of Pico Union. How is mm-hmm. it that this school does not have an immigration clinic, right? So through that, my classmates and I co-founded the Immigration Law Society, which is basically what our effort to try to bring more awareness of immigration law and immigration issues onto campus. And through that, we worked with the Mexican-American Bar Association to hold basically these mini clinics out in the community at Homeboy Industries and Dolores Mission in Boyle Heights. And long story short, it's one of those incidences where all of the stars align. You know, Father Greg, who founded Homeboy, is an LMU alum. Loyola is a Jesuit law school. Dolores Mission is a Jesuit parish. So I felt that we could all combine to really put pressure on the school to help start this clinic. So... Upon graduating, my classmate and I put forward a fellowship proposal to to start the clinic. And I think insistency was key in our case mm-hmm. because the school basically gave us six months. They were like six months to bring this project together. And within those six months, we were lucky enough to find additional funding that basically allowed us to create the clinic that is today. Here at the law school, we are one of the biggest clinics on campus. We have a team of seven permanent staff. I teach usually like this year, I have 10 law students in my first year clinic, but then we have advanced students come back. So anywhere between 10 to 20 students we have at one time. And it's really been great to see what this has become. And, you know, as I joked around with my mentor from USC, Professor Frenzen, I would tell him, I'm going to have your job one day. Like, I want to be a professor like you, but still practice law. And I knew that I wanted to do that at one point in my Mm -hmm. career. I just never knew that I was going to do it so quickly. I don't regret it whatsoever. And it's been incredibly rewarding. It really has. Yeah. I'm, I'm just so proud, like hearing what you've done. And those six months have, must've been like really tough and then after those six months like those those first years of like having the clinic can you share more deep into that like you know what what have been the highlights of it the lessons learned and the things that now you're more experienced in see in a different light and maybe for the next moments do differently yeah i think the hardest thing for the clinic to take off was actually building trust in the community. Because we were a new immigration clinic, our clinic focuses on the community of Boyle Heights in East LA. And what helped us was really partnering up with already well-respected organizations in the community, Homeboy and the Church Dolores Mission. But even then, being young attorneys, many community members were really hesitant to come forward and seek our services. So to a certain extent, like we had to prove ourselves. You know, We had to be community Mm -hmm. lawyers. We had to go out there. We had to be present. And we started even doing very simple things in the sense like just doc applications, um, naturalization applications. And then quickly the word starts spreading. But that was, it took us a very long time for the community to really feel comfortable and coming forward with us. And now we have wait lists because, you know, we unfortunately don't have the capacity to take on all of the demand that we have. But that was probably the, the hardest thing. Now, I'm trying to think, uh, that would probably like a lesson learned and that I pass on to other attorneys who want to do this type of Mm -hmm. work. Don't expect communities to just 
think like, oh, hey, you're a free attorney. We're going to come and seek your services. You really have to put some work into it. Moving forward, you know, the the clinic is at a place where it's, you know, it, it we're thinking about potentially breaking it into a center. So it's still being part of the law school, but we have had the opportunity to develop so many extra programs now. For example, I teach a class immigration law in the border where I actually take students down to El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. And we're starting to think like, well, what other offerings can we give students? Because as a result of the clinic, we're having a lot of students come to the law school specifically just to study immigration law. And we're currently ranked number seven in the nation for immigration law, which is something we're very proud about. And we'll get to number one soon. Uh, so those it's very exciting because it's like what is the future of the clinic and it's really been exciting too to see Loyola take such mm-hmm. a strong stance on the issue and so happy to have so many students who, who are involved it's more one of those things that like we have so much interest what else that is it that we can keep doing yeah that's where we're at and you said something you, every spring break you take these students in El Paso mm-hmm. and they work closely with immigration law and they actually work closely in detention um, centers, right? One in the... So, yeah. So we actually have two spring break practicums. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I teach immigration law and the border and the one that my coworker teaches called separated and detained where they go down to detention centers mm-hmm. in Dilly, Texas. Mine, it's actually in the process of changing because of the changes in immigration law. This year, it looks like we'll actually be doing work more in Juarez um, with migrants who are currently being forced to remain in Mexico mm-hmm. during their removal proceedings. And the one that my coworker heads, um, they go to Dilly, Texas, and they basically do intake like consultations and some bond hearings for individuals to see if they can bond out of detention. So my class, it, it's very, they're, well, actually both classes are very intensive. And then basically the students are required once they, to sacrifice their spring breaks for a good cause. And they hit the ground running when they get there. They're assigned their cases. They have to prep, opening statements, you know, yes. direct examination, cross, all within a week. But, you know, it's it's a lot of fun because I feel it's like our effort as um, Californians to make, the, you know, our little impact over yes. in Texas, which is very anti-immigrants in the Fifth Circuit, very disfavorable immigration law. And we've had a lot of success. And it's important to expose students that, you know, yes, it's very tough, you know, right now immigration law, but I think we still live in our California bubble and our Ninth Mm -hmm. Circuit bubble where things are a little better in comparison to the rest of the nation. For them to see the differences between being an immigration attorney here in L.A. versus one that's actually down at the border. We also have other offerings. I'm, you know, currently in the process of, developing also a course where I take students down to Guadalajara. As you mentioned, I, I teach every summer at Eliteso, which is something very special for me being that I was born there. Mm-hmm. And that it was actually the first time I got to go back was due to this offer to go teach there. And we've been talking to the university about not only, you know, developing some sort of exchange where students can go and work with migrants in transit, but how is it that we can help them also establish an immigration clinic in Guadalajara, given that a lot of migrants are not opting to remain in Mexico Mm -hmm. or seek asylum in Mexico. I took three students this last time, and um, it was a very special experience because all three students... It just happened to be that they were all from Jalisco. One of them was formally undocumented. So it was a very beautiful full circle moment for us to go back and provide services in, you know, the the state of our, you know, either background or birth and help those who are now making the journey north. Yeah. And what were those big wins that, you know, you were able to help while, you know, in immigration in El Paso or, you know, teaching in Guadalajara? 
and during your career like what have those been can you share with us i've had a ton i've been i've been blessed to have you know work with awesome law students and also have really awesome clients here in the clinic i know that some of my most personal ones is i represented a young girl her name was also esmeralda esme who i still talk to this day and she wants to be an immigration attorney now she came in wanting to apply for daca and we ended up identifying her as qualifying for something called special immigrant juvenile status for kids have either been abused, abandoned, or neglected by one or both parents. And she didn't have her parents in her life. Her grandparents were raising her. And we were able to secure her green card literally right in time for her to go to college and get financial aid. (laughs) Yeah. And she now is doing amazing up in Seattle. And where I'm hoping that she'll come here uh, to Loyola. No pressure, Esme, to to pursue her, her desire of being an immigration attorney, too. I've also represented victims of human trafficking. Dunya and Bero, we were very successful in getting their T visas approved. Those cases were uphill battles because a lot of the time the government doesn't actually identify victims of trafficking as actual victims and sometimes more as perpetrators of crime. So we had some obstacles that we were successful in obtaining and closing their cases. They were in removal. So we were able to terminate their proceedings. You know, I also sought asylum for a young woman and her daughter who are actually seeking asylum out of Mexico because of domestic violence. Her husband was in the military. And I have so many, but these are just like some highlights of, of the cases we've done. In in El Paso, we've also been successful in getting cases um, for people who've been like longtime residents of the United States. Just recently, this last year, my students, one of which is also a DACA recipient, I was so proud of him. Him and his partner, partner Marco and Anai, were successful in obtaining cancellation of removal for a victim of domestic violence in, in El Paso. And this woman was like a 20-year resident of El Paso, and they were able to secure her her green card. So, and you know, this profession comes with a lot of, or this area of practice comes with a lot of highs and lows. But when you hit those highs, it's a reminder as to why you do this work. Yeah. That's great. That's wonderful. And that's so inspiring. And it kind of gives you that hope, you know, that our community is in good hands and that even though what's happening right now, because a lot of terrible things are happening in this country, you know, people are like you, you know, are helping and guiding our community to have a better life, you know, to have that, the green card, you know, just to to be safe. Mm -hmm. And you said the lows and you said that, you know, immigration in California is so much different from El Paso in Texas. Mm -hmm. And obviously we know what's going on. Yeah. You know, children are locked in cages and can, I, I feel this is important to talk about. Can we go further on those lows and what can lawyers, attorneys in immigration law do to, you know, help? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been very testing to be an immigration attorney during the Trump administration. I tell people like he has an actual direct impact on my life every single day in that of my clients. It's, it's been very rough and I'm trying to think. Yeah, I'm trying to think like, you know, I don't want to sound like a pessimist or anything like that. For, first off, I'll say this. 
despite the obstacles that we've had, I will say that there has been some comfort in seeing, you know, the outreach that has been going forward, especially Mm -hmm. from people who don't necessarily see immigration as an issue that they're very concerned about because of what's, you know, now happening. Um, So it's been nice to feel that sense of solidarity um, and individuals coming forward either with donations or wanting to offer assistance and somehow. I would say that, you know, something that, especially during this time, that needs to be kept in mind is that immigration is very much a human issue. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a political issue. It's people's lives. And, you know, I've gotten to do a lot of work with migrants in transit. I've been down to the border, not just with the U.S., but with Guatemala. Mm -hmm. It's not any better down in Guatemala. Actually, it's a lot worse. Um, And understanding that this is not just a human issue, but it's very much an international issue too. You know, the issues impacting immigration in the the U.S. is minimal compared to international issues considering smuggling and migration. As to what immigration attorneys can do now, you know, I think we're all working really hard. But something that I will say, and I see this a lot, especially when I go down to the frontera, you really got to check yourself. You know, again, talking about the issues of being the savior, you're there to inform people of their rights. Mm-hmm. You're not there to tell people what decisions to go to to go forward with. I've had I've been present with attorneys saying stuff like, no, you need to present yourself. No, let the client make that decision, you know, because presenting themselves might actually mean separating themselves from their families. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be being detained for a long time. It might mean remain in Mexico. And these individuals have already gone through so much crossing multiple countries. They are best suited to make those decisions when it comes to impacting their lives. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that would be my my biggest response as to, like, what immigrations can do now. And, you know, even also for, like, I've had, you know, non-practicing immigration attorneys reach out wanting to be present and helpful. That's great. But sometimes it can be more work to train than to be the ones out there to train them than me just do the work. Right. Um, So all of us, all of us nonprofit attorneys, all immigration clinics would probably really benefit from your donations and stuff. (laughs) Um, So put your money where your mouth is if you really want to support this work. Yeah. And. You know, it's good that you mentioned because right now, uh, Loyola Immigration Justice Clinic is, you know, doing a fundraiser and to raise, goal is to to raise $250,000. Yes. Um, So right now we're doing a really big um, funding campaign Mm -hmm. for the clinic. The reason being is because obviously we are, our services are very much in demand, not just because student interest, but mostly because of community demand. Mm -hmm. And we're really trying to bolster our, um, our, you know, the money that we have so that we can be more free in doing the type of work that we want to do. Um, because unfortunately, a lot of the grants and stuff that many of us nonprofits are required to um, apply for have certain conditions that don't let us represent mm-hmm. every single person when really right now, despite criminal history, immigration bars, what said, et cetera, the entire community is under attack and everyone is in uh, much deserving of an attorney. So yes, if you want to feel free to donate, feel free to um, visit us on our IG page at Loyola IJC. The link is there. These donations also potentially help us send our students to do work in El Paso, in Guadalajara, and in Dilly, Texas. Mm -hmm. So even if it's just a dollar, it all goes to a great cause and is tax deductible. (laughs) Perfect. Yes. And like you said, you know, we are mad angry you know what's happening and you want to help you know put your money uh put your money where your mouth is yeah. and donate I yeah think that is the best way and not interfere and it's 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 great and honorable to 
be there and help. But like you said, let the train advocates do yes. the work. Yes. Yes. And you said that you worked in Guatemala, you know, in the border, in the frontera there. You know, I, I know how that is because uh, immigrants are passing through Guatemala and Mexico. They are treated horrible. But maybe for our listeners who have no idea, you know, yeah. can you go deeper into that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so part of it is that this summer when I was down in Guadalajara and I took my students, I was there for actually a total of six weeks and... I traveled throughout Mexico doing either Know Your Rights presentations, training other immigration attorneys or organizations that do immigrant rights work um, throughout Mexico. And I was able to go down to Tapachula in Chiapas and worked with the Jesuit Refugee Services down there. A coworker went with me to Sandra. I think what was astonishing about that is seeing how heavily militarized the Mexico-Guatemala border is. And that was we actually went days before Mexico decided to um, launch its National Guard. From the moment we stepped off of the airport, there was military tanks and Mexican military members present. I don't know how many detention, I mean, yeah, checkpoints I went through all the way to through Tapachula, all the way to the border of um, with Guatemala. Um, I saw them detain a group of 80 Haitians. I saw them deport a busload of Guatemalan children. I saw them pull off of a bus some about 15 Pakistanis. And what's crazy about Tapachula is that it kind of really put the issue of human smuggling in my face because of how heavily diverse that city is. You see migrants from literally all over the world. And I remember even asking my one of the other service members from the from JRS, like, I don't see these migrants when we get to mm-hmm. Tijuana, right? Because the majority of the migrants that you're seeing in Tijuana are Central American. Now you see Haitians and Cubans too, like every now and then. But, you know, they explained to me that many of the migrants, specifically those who come from either Southeast Asia, China, Africa, tend to be migrants who have higher economic capacity and aren't forced to travel actually through Mexico. Smugglers find other ways to to bring them through through the states. And so it really showed me that it's very much like a big international issue. It's not a, you know, a U.S. versus Mexico issue Mm -hmm. or U.S. versus Mexico versus Central America issue. And when people say that, you know, Mexico has a very porous border, I would actually very much beg to differ based on the experiences that I had traveling down there and just seeing the amount of military presence, federal police, immigration agents. I don't see this number of actual physical government employees when I go visit the U.S. border. And, you know, and something that I asked, too, when I was part of this observation going to Guatemala, I asked them, like, well, if you guys are so heavily militarized, how is it that you left let the caravan go through? And which their response was, and, you know, I, I have my criticism because the Mexican government, just like the U.S. government, engages in all sorts of human rights violations every day. But they said that, you know, they didn't want to use lethal force and has hence the reason why that let the caravan go through. But now we do very much see them detaining individuals, not even them allowing them to cross further than the state of Chiapas in an effort to detain those who who are crossing. It's very much one of those things that it's not until you hear about it, but it's Mm -hmm. not until you see it. I don't want to say you understand it because I don't think I'll fully understand it. But you end up realizing the magnitude of the issue and you see how much it impacts people on a daily basis. Yeah. And... Can I ask you, did, with the caravan, were you there helping once they were in Tijuana and where, did you help any of them or how, how did you, how were you able to guide? 
these people. Yeah. Um, it's I did go when the caravan first hit Tijuana. I did go to volunteer once, and it's it was a little frustrating. And the thing is, like you know, it's what can you do in a sense of emergency? You know, hun- uh, you know, fifteen thousand people are showing up to the border. They're getting all sorts of different information from people who are immigration attorneys, mm-hmm. non-immigration attorneys, volunteering, volunteers trying to coordinate. It was very um, chaotic, right? And obviously, you see these people present wanting to present themselves, people telling them different things, and they don't know who to believe. And then they have coyotes mm-hmm. telling them something else completely different. And it's one of those things when you realize, like, you can't. And this is probably like also helping me check my savior mentality when I was, I was like, I was like, you can't help everyone. You know, it's one person at a time, but it was very overwhelming. And me being just an immigration attorney, I was like, I can only imagine for those people who are now presenting themselves in Tijuana and they got promised the sun, moon and the stars by these human smugglers or supposed caravan leaders. And now they're faced with the harsh reality that they're being separated, they're being detained, they're being forced to remain in Mexico. And I think, too, what I, what I saw in Guatemala a lot, too, is, you know, I, I personally have very mixed feelings about the caravan. I do believe in a right to migration and that people have a right to migrate, but I do think that it's become a bit exploitive through the caravan. Caravans have been throughout history created by mostly by religious organizations to make sure people are traveling safely as they transit. But what I saw, especially in Guatemala, is now that they've been co-opted mostly by smugglers Mm -hmm. who present themselves now as coyotes. They're like, oh, I'm a caravan leader. No one knows who these caravan leaders are. I'm going to cross 200 150 of you guys because it'll be free and it'll be safe but once they get to mexico the coyotes start charging because they realize that people the people realize that they can't continue crossing so it's become a money maker for a lot of smugglers when you know caravans were originally designed to very much be a safety net and at the end of the day you know the one that's being impacted are those who are in transit not just those who are in transit but also those who have been present in the united states for a while because it's caused the trump administration to not only attack those coming but those who are here and those who are barely starting their journey yeah and and early in the conversation you said that immigration law is currently changing for those that are not informed, can you explain how those changes are going to affect our community and the, the people that are right now with an attorney and trying to obtain their green cards and their mm-hmm. citizenships? And how how is that going to affect them? Oh, man, that's a good question because literally there's like a change every week. It's like every yes. Monday morning, Trump's like, hey, let me drop some news on you. And it's never positive. <laughs> You know, there have been issues and stuff like, you know, now that migrants are being required to remain in Mexico, which is in violation of not only U.S. law, but international law, you know, under international law and immigration law here in the States, you have a right to present yourself and seek asylum, you know, despite your form of entry, be it illegally, be it with a visa, or be it if you present yourself at the border, which is what we recommend people to do. We've also seen there's been an attack on immigrants, specifically those who might be of low income. The Trump administration has been trying to force the public charge rule was basically if you use any type of public benefit to bar you from maybe getting your residency in the United States. And really what many migrants don't realize is that you being undocumented actually already don't have a right to public benefits. It's a really just a scare tactic in a way for 
individuals who have family members who might be U.S. citizens, like a child, you know, to try to dissuade them from seeking benefits that they're entitled to. You know, we also have seen the Trump administration specifically go after those who are seeking humanitarian relief. So if you've been a victim of a crime, if you've been a victim of human trafficking before these types of visas were protected, that if they were denied, you wouldn't be referred and placed in removal proceedings. Now there's a potential that you might be. And the best thing to do right now is proceed with caution. And I know that many individuals, many community members say they'd rather just remain under the radar. But I really think more than anything, this is the time that you have to become aware of your rights and become aware if you actually qualify for any form of relief. So I really recommend people to seek out the assistance of an immigration attorney. Make sure they're an actual immigration attorney because there's also high issues of notario fraud Mm -hmm. in our community, unfortunately, which are individuals who pose as attorneys and are not and can cause more damage to your case. But become informed. That's the best thing that you can do and ask questions. I tell my clients all the time, call me. Like if you hear something in the news, just call me. Just call Mm -hmm. me and I'll explain it to you. See if it applies to you or not because the best thing you can do right now is just remain informed. Yes. So thank you for that advice. And I also want to go deeper into students, our listeners, Latinas who are wanting to study, um, be an attorney. What advice would you give them? We we talked about it. Mm -hmm. You know, Push aside the savior complex, you know, be humble and really inform yourself that you're going to guide people. But what advice do you recommend to them to take on? Yeah. Be it if you're someone who is applying to law school or in law school already, already, or if you're just a young attorney, if you just graduate law school, the best thing you can do is to seek out mentorship. Please seek us out. You know, the law is incredibly male dominated. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly white male dominated. And there's only about 2.5% of us nationwide. And by us, I mean Latina attorneys. And it's been a struggle. You know, it's been a struggle to claim space, to occupy these, these places, to become attorney to become an attorney and we are here to help pull you up right so the best thing you do is really to seek out mentorship also be your own advocate you know you need to be your own self-promoter and you know if you accomplish something if you want to seek out a certain award go for it you know or have someone nominate you really try to push yourself forward because trust me other people do it you need to do it for yourself too so i said mentorship what else did i say mentorship also finding advocating for yourself oh yes also make sure to get plugged in with your community Um, you know for me a big part of it was you know especially my first year of law school I struggled a lot because I wasn't if your first year of classes you take like common core classes you're Mm going to take contracts you're going to take property you're going to take stuff that absolutely does not interest you and you will never need in your career But remain involved somehow. You know, I, you know, I started doing volunteer work on the side just to help remind me why I'm doing this work. Something that I always tell my students is that your grades don't mean anything. Your law school grades don't mean anything. And I know other professors get very angry at me when I say this, but I'm just keeping it real. Your grades will not define you. You know, your grades will not determine who you will be as an attorney um, and it won't stop you from getting certain positions, right? I get it. If you want to go and be a clerk for a judge right away or if you want to learn, land that law firm job that big corporate job well then yeah you need to be in the top 10 20 percent of your law school mm-hmm. right but that doesn't mean that you can end up doing it some other point of your career and then another thing too is that imposter syndrome is real you know especially for us women of color mm-hmm. you will be doubted um, even by your own colleagues and individuals that identify as allies and that imposter syndrome can be very hard to overcome be it when you're studying in law school taking the LSAT 
or even going to court on your first case and really try to hard to combat that. And again, I think it's if you establish a network, it, that will be helpful. Another thing too is, you know, I rely a lot on my family, but sometimes family doesn't always understand <laughs> the obstacles of being an attorney or being a law student. I actually got an email from a student a while ago that her parents didn't understand why she said that she was working so much in law school. And I said, I was like, happy to talk to your parents about the reality that it is. Because sometimes there is a struggle. You know, our parents are used to seeing us succeed. I remember my dad told me too, and he, I was like, dad, pasé the bar exam. Ay, mija, you pass everything. Right. I was like, dad, it's like, you don't understand. understand. And to the end, he never understood. He was like, yeah, yeah, you're going to be fine. So, you know, understand that your parents, your family will always be supportive, but sometimes they're not always going to be understanding and you just have to remain focused on what you're going for. But yeah, the best thing you can do is build community, build your own reputation, know that you're going to be doubted. But if you work hard, you will make it and you will make your name known. Yeah. Did you suffer? through imposter syndrome in your first years? Oh, I suffer with imposter syndrome every day. It is something that comes up and you can never actually get rid of it. And I think it happens... You know, from this, like even this morning, I was having a conversation with my friend that sometimes you realize you're like, how did I even occupy this space? Mm -hmm. How did I get here? Especially when you see yourself as the only, you only see yourself, you see no one else who's like you. And you tend to question like, well, what made me stand out from other people? Why is it that I got this, you know, given this opportunity? And we just have to remember that we earned it and we deserve it. Right. But imposter syndrome is something that I, I, I deal with constantly. Mm-hmm. And I think something too, and that's what's been helping me a lot is affirmations. And I've actually shared them with other colleagues, other um, women of color who are also teaching and just reminding yourself that you are meant to occupy space, even though it makes you and others uncomfortable, that you have value, especially your voice, and that you are an incredibly powerful being. Um, you carry with you not your own knowledge, but your generational knowledge. Um, and you have the support of your ancestors and your community. And remind that whenever you're doubting yourself. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. And I think I I feel we can add things to for our Latinas if they want if they want to be uh, an immigration attorney is to know Spanish. Yes, because you know migrants they don't know English. They might not be bilingual, and you need to uh, make them aware of what's happening of the laws and informing them in Espanol. Sí, sí, sí. And this is something that I I have a conversation with my students all the time, Mm -hmm. not even my any Mm non-Spanish speaking student. I tell them this, like, if you want to do this work, it's your duty to either learn the language or you find your own interpreter. You do Mm -hmm. not put that burden on your client. Mm -hmm. No, you're the one that's coming into the space to do this work. You're the one that needs to get you need to find a way to to make sure you're able to communicate and advocate, right? Mm-hmm. I also tell students that you're going to have to learn to work with an, uh, an interpreter one day or another. You know, not all... I've been lucky enough that most of my clients are Spanish or English speaking, but every now and then I might come across a client that speaks Quiche mm-hmm. or some sort of indigenous dialect. And it's the burden on me as the advocate to make sure that I get an interpreter that is going to be able to work with me and my client. Another thing, too, that I like to tell my students of um, who are either native speakers or speak Spanish, it's also not your burden to be the interpreter. You know, I get really frustrated sometimes when I see my law students get placed in a role of just interpretation because they're just as capable Mm -hmm. as the student that doesn't speak the language, especially if it's your own community you're serving. 
the burden should be on the other student or on the attorney, yeah. right? So whenever I have partners who one speaks Spanish, one speaks English, I always make sure that I get an interpreter for them because I don't want the burden to fall on my native speaking yeah. um, student. But yes, it's very important that if you want, you're the one, it's your duty to acculturate yourself. Yes. And maybe it's speaking Spanish or if there's some other immigrant group that you want to assist. Yes. Making sure that you at least try and your clients are going to appreciate it. I tell my students all the time, like even if it's a simple, hola, como estas, da, da, da. You build that trust. You build that trust and they, they appreciate the effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned mentorship because as a young Latina, we have no idea how to seek that mentor. And you were fortunate enough to have your family friend, your tia, who's mm-hmm. a lawyer, who was an attorney that was guiding you and that she has been your mentor since day one. And I, I imagine she still is obviously. Yes. Yes. And I feel, can you give us some tips how does one find a mentor to be guided, to be reminded, to be, you know, mm-hmm. just affirmed and remind you that she, she went through that. You're going to make it. You're going to make yeah. it. You know, it, I would recommend seeking us out. We're here, right? Mm-hmm. Shoot us an email, Google. You know, if you're a student at a university, let's say you go to undergrad somewhere and they have a law school See if they have Latino faculty on uh, you know, as part of their law school. Reach out to them, you mm-hmm. know. Also, there's, at least here in L.A., I can tell you there's many bar associations. The Latina Lawyers Bar Association, the Mexican-American Bar Association, the Hispanic National yes. Bar Association. Send us an email, you know. Happy to introduce you to someone in your practice area of interest. Just to chat and tell you what it's like and give you advice. Especially right now when you're either a student. I say attorneys love talking to them about themselves, so they're going to love talking to you. <laughs> so take advantage yeah. of that. Also seek out your alumni network. For example, Loyola has a very strong Latino alumni group. So if you want to seek out a mentor, reach out to your alumni relations, and they'd be probably happy to put you into contact. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you have to be the one to make the the uh, you know take your first uh, put your what's the saying the first step first step forward right because we won't know you're there unless you come look for us Mm -hmm. and don't be scared you know we we were just you and if anything we're excited i get very excited whenever i have a student reach out to me or a prospective student or a new attorney Mm -hmm. always happy to to chat yeah and for networking i must confess that before networking I, i i feared that word you know it was i saw it as Maybe I didn't want to take advantage of it because I was like, I, I'm doing the work myself and I'm going to be with my friends and, you know, I need whatever I do, I'll do it. I don't need the help of higher ups or, or anything. And for people, listeners who may be thinking that same way as I did mm-hmm. when I was younger, can you share like maybe reframing that mindset because you have said that while you were studying, you know, you had this friends and, you know, classmates mm-hmm. and this network of people, you know, that helped you along the way. So yeah. did you have that, you know, doubt and fear? Yeah, no. Networking is always intimidating, especially as a, a student. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, we want to talk to you guys. So take advantage of it. You're going to become yes. a lot less interesting once you're like an older attorney. <laughs> So take advantage of it now. And the reason the law, like any career, is all about who you know and your reputation again. And 
you know, I've been fortunate enough that I've had many other Latino attorneys have my back, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, let me introduce you to Marissa. She's really interested in immigration law. Oh, she wants to do this. How can we help you? Oh, you're interested in potential politics. You know, we're here to help guide you because we've had other people do that for ourselves. And the reason that I, I tell my Latino students or my students of color this is more important is because we have... We have come to the law with, I don't want to say disadvantages, but with less resources. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have necessarily the same connections in our family or an immediate group when it comes to already having connections to the law. And I will tell you that I know many well-off, well-connected students who have absolutely no problem pulling those yes. connections when they're needed. So you need to hustle and make your own. So I know it's intimidating, but you have to put yourself out there. And right now it's the perfect time because you are a prospective law student or young attorney. Yeah. That's excellent. And I really want to ask you about right now you're in the California Department of Justice and the you're going to what you're doing right now is the Caligan database technical advisory. Can you explain further on that? Because the work that you're doing in terms of the gang database, um, what does that consist of? And what's the day to day? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of my work overlaps, actually a lot of my research on the immigration consequences of gang involvement and gang allegations. Mm -hmm. Um, This work really came about due to the experience that I've had representing a lot of individuals who are from homeboy industries, so people who have had gang allegations or had family members in gangs, and then law enforcement has imputed gang membership mm-hmm. on them, which is actually what we see most commonly. So my involvement with the gang databases really came, became about because we were seeing that ICE was now asserting gang allegations against many community members. Mm-hmm. And for example, many Docker recipients that maybe lived in certain neighborhoods or had family members that were gang involved or friends that were gang involved were facing obstacles and obtaining either deferred action or clients who were seeking U visas or T visas maybe due to law enforcement or immigration now having information of their supposed gang involvement. So through this work, we ended up realizing that California, well, California is not the only one, but many states have their own databases, which law enforcement uses for intelligence-based purposes. And what we were seeing is that law enforcement was classifying individuals as gang members without their knowledge. And in order to be placed in the database, you didn't even necessarily have to come into contact, meaning like they didn't have to actually detain you or arrest you. A simple like, Hey, Brenda, how are you? Who are you with? Oh, you're with your homie. Oh, what color are you wearing? Is that red? Oh, let me see that tattoo. Is it LA Dodgers? That would have been enough of a communication to place you into the database. Yeah. So I always use myself as an example Mm -hmm. as an attorney that lives in Boyle Heights and represents gang members and my favorite color is red, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. Law enforcement stops me to just have a quick chit chat. And that would have been enough for them to fill out a field interview card on me and place me into this database. So the work that I've been doing with the Department of Justice is that there was a series of laws that basically are now meant to regulate the database because it was being abused by law enforcement and it was being shared by with federal agencies, Mm -hmm. hence how immigration got their hands on it, to try to bring to write regulations that are a bit more acceptable, accepted by both law enforcement and the community. Serving on the committee has been very interesting. Interesting. I'm the only woman on the committee and the only woman of color. It's been very interesting to work with law enforcement. Um, it's been interesting. I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. And it's really showed me, I think what it exposed me to is how difficult, to a certain extent, this did give me an exposure of like politics per se can mm-hmm. be. 
and how slow and bureaucratic the government can be. And it actually gave me a lot of sympathy for elected officials, even though this was an appointed position, because I realized how slow things work because there's so many rules and different stages you need to go mm-hmm. through. So the regulations are, have already been submitted based on like any recommendations that all of the committee members made. And now the Department of Justice is being tasked with writing the regulations. And this is that's currently where we are right now. And the regulations are set to be released in January of 2020. So my appointment uh, has continuing. I don't know what it'll become. I also just got recently appointed onto the Los Angeles City um, Commission on Civil and Human Rights. So, yeah, this is my second exposure into, you know, government, and I'm pretty excited about it. Can you share with us about that? Yeah, yeah. So I was just appointed by Mayor Garcetti Mm -hmm. onto the commission, and it's an inaugural commission that um, was just created by the city of Los Angeles. And basically, the city of L.A. has passed a series of ordinances to fight discrimination Mm -hmm. in um, either employment, housing, commerce, education, and potentially more. Mm -hmm. So through this commission, now Angelinos or L.A. residents will be able to bring forward complaints for us to review and basically either help two parties settle if there was an incidence of discrimination or potentially go to court or, you know, um, mediation. Mm -hmm. So that appointment also starts in January. (laughs) And um um, we'll see since it's brand new. Um, I don't necessarily know what my full on role is mm-hmm. to be, but from my understanding, because of that reason, as commissioners, we're going to have much creativity as to what we can establish and as to what kind of laws we can actually or ordinances we can recommend to city council to adopt. So I'm really excited. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And can you share, you know, you said that you're the only woman and a woman of color in the committee of gang database you know along your career i am obviously imagine you've been faced with obstacles and discrimination you know let's can you share about that and how has that those unfortunate experience have made you the woman that you are today yeah I am often the only woman of color in many, many scenarios. The the cow gang one is just one example. And that one in particular was, I, I'll admit, the first meeting was incredibly intimidating because mm-hmm. I was with a group of law enforcement, right? All much older and predominantly white male. But by the end of it, I think I got them to have some respect for me, probably more than my other committee members. So it was very satisfying. I'd like to say that, you know, we're cordial with yes. one another. <laughs> And it's one of those things where you have to you have to pump yourself up because to this day, I get people who doubt my capability, question me. Like I said, I've had I've had incidences with people who do my kind of work anyways, colleagues of mine, you know, mm-hmm. allies who have called into question my work. And when I see I I hear them, I can't help but think that their questioning is due to the fact that I'm a Latina, yes. right? More than just being a woman is because I am Latina, right? And if anything, that has motivated me more to not only work hard, but seek out different opportunities. And so, you know, and I let my work speak for themselves. So even though individuals may doubt me, I'm winning cases. My students love me, or at least they tell me they do. They might just tell me that because I'm their professor. (laughs) Um, You know, I've had the opportunity to go and teach abroad. I've Mm -hmm. been invited back multiple times. So you have to let the work speak for yourself. But I'm going to tell you something. It is exhausting because there's times where you're like, man, you know, screw this. I am done. 
you know, because it's, it's hard to have people constantly question you. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, we've been questioned our entire lives. And it's just something that you need to know that it's not something that goes away, no matter how successful you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And you just have to, you know, let the haters hate and just keep doing your thing. Yes. Because at the end of the day, the work that you do will speak for itself. And I always think about like, so long as you're happy, my students are happy, and I'm doing the work that I want to do and serving my community, then that in itself is success, despite yes. what other people might say. Excellent. Yeah. And you said that, you know, our, the strength of your ancestors, you know, is with you and, you know, pushes you, uplifts you. The affirmations that you do, having that network of people, of friends supporting you. But what do you do when those moments you're like, you know, I'm tired, like, maybe I don't want to do this. You know, how do you find that balance? Because obviously being an attorney of immigration law is like you said, emotionally draining, Mm -hmm. mentally draining. Share with us, you know, things that you do in order to just build yourself up again. Like, yeah, to just give your all. Self-care is key. I tell my students, you know, especially my students of color, like we are used to being sacrificial, you know, but we didn't work this hard. Our parents didn't work our, this hard. And our ancestors sure has not work this hard for us to just continue sacrificing ourselves. You have to enjoy life. You need, and I'm very big, and my students can tell you that I'm very big on work hard, play hard. So you, ha- you, have, to, you have to enjoy life. So things that I, that I do to take care of myself is, one, is setting boundaries. And I think that goes also with, you know, the savior complex that you mm-hmm. can't take on everything. You can't take on every case. You need to know when to say no and you need to know when to delegate, you know, and sometimes it might hurt to say no because you're like, oh, that's a great case. Oh, that's a great opportunity. Those things will happen again. I promise you. Right. And don't lose sight of the things that you enjoy doing. So, for example, I, I love to travel. So I travel actually a lot for work. But even though it's work, I always make an effort, especially if I'm in a new city, to see something or do something. You know, I never really got to travel when I was younger. So I always take advantage whenever I can or, you know, take vacation whenever I can. I just semi-impulsively booked a flight to Egypt, Israel, and Jordan for December over Christmas break. I'm not going to think about it, but I'm really (laughs) excited. But sometimes you have to be able to do those things for yourself. You know, my family helps remain, uh, helps me keep grounded. I have a strong, you know, strong group of friends who are very successful women of color as well. And we rely on each other. My best friend, Vanessa and Mercedes, one's a social worker. The other one's a public defender. You know, I also always try whenever I can, especially I'm really big into rock and espanol. So you can find me at any rock and espanol concert. Um, Just do things that make you happy. And sometimes outside of your practice, especially outside of the work that you do. I can talk about immigration 24-7, don't get me wrong. But, you know, burnout is real. And I think, too, something that it's important for professionals to remember, especially as attorneys, especially women as well, is that you're very versatile in this position. So think of other ways that you can do the work that's fulfilling, but maybe taking a break. Mm -hmm. For example, like I was getting really burnt out with direct services for a while. So doing policy work and uh, policy-related work with the Department of Justice was still, you know, related to the work that I'm doing, but it's different, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing with the commission. So I'll still be doing public interest related work, but maybe now instead of immigration, it's discrimination. But obviously the law is intersectional. Issues are intersectional. So even though I might not be directly doing immigration law, I'm still somehow 
helping the immigrant community. So don't forget that you are versatile in your profession and you can do many things and that will also help you. Excellent. Yeah. And you mentioned a lot of things that you would wish for our Latinas who are interested in being attorneys, you know, advocating for yourself. Take advantage of those networking connections. But what do you wish for our Latinas, for a future generation who want to be attorneys, for them to have that maybe you didn't have when you started being an attorney? Well, that's a good question. I wish, you know, and this is maybe this is a little like, who knows if this will happen, but I wish that us as Latinas or women of color, we didn't have to be, we didn't have to do double the work mm -hmm. to show our worth and value, you know? And I wish that one day we will have that equal footing, you know, and that means destroying centuries of issues surrounding colonialism <laughs> and racism and, you know, structural racism and et cetera. But it really does grind you down sometimes, you know, and it's hard. It's exhausting. And what I always think about is, you know, we're every... Um, Latina attorney that comes through, you're breaking, you're, you're breaking ground, right? Mm -hmm. And you're breaking ground for those who are coming after you, you know, just like those who came before you. As you can see, this is a big theme in my, yes. <laughs> my personal career. And so, yeah, just know that regardless of the obstacles, you are, you are setting precedent. Mm -hmm. And I wish that I could take away some of the obstacles you're going to face but they're always going to be there. Yes. But one day, slowly but surely. I don't know if that really answers your question. No, but, but <laughs> that was a great answer, yes. But yeah, that's what I wish. And I really want to ask you this question. You know, elections are coming up. And you as an attorney in immigration and the justice, and, you know, you're, you're so in and helping the community. What... How do you see... I know immigration is changing constantly every day. Every Monday, you mm -hmm. said. What do you think will happen in terms of immigration? And attorneys, what can they do? What what do you see yourself doing, you know, in terms yeah. of that change? And what can people like me who isn't an attorney, you know, continue to donate but yeah. help? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question because... Um, Again, not to sound a bit of a pessimist, but I've actually not been paying attention purposefully to a lot of either the impeachment stuff mm -hmm. or the election because I'm just so tired, yeah. right? And it's exhausting and I'd rather be surprised than get my hopes up to be, <laughs> that yeah. sounds incredibly <laughs> depressing, but that's the truth, right? And the thing is that the Trump administration has been so incredibly destructive, not only in terms of immigration law, but all sorts of other issues, it's going to take years of undoing that I don't even think the next president, even if it was yeah. going to be a Democratic president, will be able to undo. You know, I don't know what's in store. I will vote for any Democratic president. I don't care. So long as we can get Trump out of office. You know, I, I am a big fan of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, mostly because they really want to forgive my student loans, which is a real thing. Yeah. Um, but it, it's hard to, to want to be motivated and hopeful with yes. everything that's happened. And I feel like the best thing that I can do right now is just remain focused on my clients yes. because even listening to the news and stuff can be more of a distraction, I feel for mm -hmm. me. And this is just a personal decision of mine because I knew how much it was affecting me. 
as to like what you could do. I, I I really think it's very important for people to become informed on the issues that they care about. For example, when whenever I get into discussions, we'll say with opposers on immigration, mm-hmm. just the lack of knowledge on the issue of true knowledge and what individuals are being fed by the media or by politicians is astonishing and how they how much they believe it without actually being informed, right? Stuff like with the public charge rule, like, oh, so many immigrants are using our public benefits. Well, actually, no, because mm-hmm. if you don't have status, you actually don't have a right to them at all to begin with, you know? Oh, immigrants don't pay taxes. Yeah, they do actually. You don't actually need a social to pay your taxes, and most of them do. So just being able to debunk the common myths, you know, are are very, very helpful. Same thing when it comes to like immigration and criminality. Those who are non-citizens of the United States are actually less likely to commit any crime in comparison to those who have been born in the States. So really just become informed to be able to educate others is very important. And just get out and vote, please. So many people didn't vote in the last election because they were disillusioned by the fact that you know, that Trump got the political ticket, I mean, the Republican ticket, or because Hillary did. And our country is very much at stake. And I believe that everyone needs to be able to go out there and vote. Just do it, please. (laughs) You know, now that we've had this wonderful conversation, and I have to, you know, confess, this is what I wanted. I was like, I was intentional. Like, I want her to give me everything. You've been giving me everything. What would you say to our young Latinos who are starting their first year of, of, of law or they're going to graduate, you know, this coming summer? What would you say to them? So the ones starting their first year of law mm-hmm. school, it's going to it's going to be hell. Uh, just to be completely honest, your first year of law school is going to be hard and it's going to challenge you in every single way that you know. Emotionally, it's going to make you question who you are. It's mentally exhausting because of the ton of work you have to do and it's intimidating. And again, not to sound like I just repeat myself, but the importance of seeking out those to support you. You know, I have students here, like I'm the faculty advisor for La Raza de Loyola, Come to my office. Come seek us out because we're here to help you and we're here to help you navigate it. And just, you know, you're incredibly resilient is more than anything what I would say. And I think sometimes we forget how resilient we are much more than other students. And you just need to keep pushing forward. Just get past it. Just pass your classes. If you get an A, awesome. And if you get that C, you're awesome too. You're passing, right? Don't let it define you as who you are as a person or who you will become as an attorney. And as my to my first year um, lawyers, it, it's scary once you get that bar card um, because the level of responsibility that you're given and then you end up realizing that law school doesn't always teach you the most practical things unless you take my clinic, of course, <laughs> and, um, and you start questioning your capability as an attorney. And I want to tell you that that questioning will continue. You will never know everything. You know, I've talked to colleagues of mine that have been practicing 20 25 years and they tell you like every day you're learning something new mm-hmm. um so again be resourceful don't be uh don't forget to ask those questions yes maybe the judge will yell at you yes maybe the clerk is going to yell at you but you know what at least they're yelling at you and not your client and at the end of the day you'll be able to navigate the system and figure it out better than your client would be able to by themselves and just with those times of doubt remember who you are and and remember your purpose and because that purpose is what's going to help you push through and be that zealous advocate for your client and community amazing and we've had this you know beautiful conversation very informative you know it's inspiring and if you have the opportunity to see little marissa right now and you know knowing what she went through 
what would you tell her? It's funny because sometimes I, I do think about that and I have a I have a little sister. She's three years old. I know it's crazy. I'm 32 and she's three. And I think about what are the things that I want to teach her. And especially as a child who had to go through a lot of adversity, I wish I could tell my younger self that you're going to make it mm-hmm. and you're going to be successful. And you shouldn't care what people think. You shouldn't care to try to, you know make other people happy. You're going to make it. And those who have always doubted you will continue to doubt you. But trust me, it's very satisfying when they find out what you do and what you're doing. So yeah, that's what I would say. (laughs) Beautiful. And where can our listeners follow you? Because, you know, you you say that, you know, to reach out to you, um, social media, LinkedIn, you know, your website. Yeah. So please follow us on Instagram at Loyola IJC. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me, Marissa Montes, um, at Loyola Law School. You know, we are also, our website, the Loyola website is currently under construction. But Mm -hmm. if you want to learn a little bit about the clinic, you can go to lls.edu backslash LIJC. Um, you should be able to find my email and stuff on there. So feel free to reach out. And also if you have if, and somebody that needs services, we also do free community intake clinics. So just Google us and happy to chat. Thank you. That's wonderful. And this will all be in the show notes. So don't worry. And thank you so much, Marissa. Thank you for allowing and you know, inviting me to your office, your beautiful office, you know, filled with wonderful and beautiful art. And just sharing your story with me here on Ellas and reminding us that people like you, women like you, Latinas, are you are doing great things for our people. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to another episode here on Ellas. And you can listen to a new episode in two weeks. Uh, I would also love to share your story. If you're interested, if you're open, please send me an email at ellasthepodcast at gmail.com. That is E-L-L-A-S, the podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at ellasthepodcast. That's E-L-L-A-S, the podcast. And follow me at Brent underscore high, B-R-E-N underscore J-A-I. Thank you for listening. And I hope you feel inspired. I hope you feel motivated if you want to study law. You know, it's going to be tough, but you're going to do it. You're going to make it. Marissa is a great example of that. And thank you. And I'll be seeing you in two weeks. Adios. If you've been listening to AS for a while, you know that I'm a big supporter of providing a platform for Latinas to share their stories and inspire current and future generations of women. With that said, I'm looking to get this podcast into the lives of more amazing Latinas just like you. You can help by going to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Tell me what you think and leave any number of stars. It would mean the world to me. Thank you in advance. Ellas is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Brenda Hernandez Jaimes. And thank you to Shro, who created the podcast theme song, Sunken Streets. You can download this track on freemusic.org or listen to him on Spotify, YouTube, and follow him on Instagram. This is Ellas.